This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. It's a given that fashion and interior design are related, but who knew they were actually sisters? Or at least that they are embodied in the careers of two incredibly talented sisters who not only shared a bedroom when growing up in Manhattan, but now live around the corner from each other in the West Village. Tani Goodman has been a fashion director at Vogue for more than two decades, where she's worked with top photographers, supermodels, and world leaders and celebrities, ranging from Michelle Obama to most recently, Gal Gadot. Before that, she was with Calvin Klein and Harper's Bazaar, and now, while continuing to work for American Vogue, she does work for Vogue editions around the world, and her stunning book, Point of View, came out last year. Welcome, Tani. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Wendy Goodman has been the interiors editor for New York Magazine since 2007, and also contributes to their online portal, The Cut. Before taking on that role, she was a fashion editor for New York Magazine and worked at Harper's Bazaar and House and Garden twice. Wendy is known for her broad taste and all-encompassing eye and her celebration of the personal style of celebrities, artists, bohemians, designers, stylists, and socialites is documented in her latest book, May I Come In. Hello, Wendy. Hello, Michael. Lovely to talk to you. Wendy's been a favorite colleague of mine in the design world, and I got to know and admire Tani during my years at Vogue. So I'm especially pleased to have them both here to talk about their careers, their connection, and what they see ahead for media, fashion, and home design. So I'm so happy you're both here. I wanted to get a little of your background because the two of you I know grew up in Manhattan and you had very stylish parents. And I think that obviously had an effect on you. And I'd just love to hear a little bit more about that. So Wendy, why don't we start with you? Well, first of all, thank you, Michael, for having us. This is a pleasure. And um, yeah, I mean, also thinking back right now to the New York we grew up in is is doubly sort of sweet and and um, kind of heartbreaking because of the quarantine and our new lives. Right, right. Our parents were incredibly artistic, and our mom was a, a is an artist and. She took us everywhere. She had four kids. She dragged us to museums and the theater and auctions and all the things she loved to do, she included us. And it, it made a huge impression on all of us. And that impression just kind of revealed itself as we grew up and went into our various careers, which all are related to some kind of creative work, I think. Our brother builds houses and has a construction company, works with his hands. He's an artist, really. And our other sister, Stacy, is an archaeologist. And she wow. she's amazing working at Sotheby's doing a pre-Columbian specialty. And so we've each taken all of our parents' kind of wonderful artistic brew and, and the exposure that they gave us. I think it was the exposure that really inspired all of us. I think that, you know, what was interesting, Wendy, is that the range that mommy exposed us to somehow tapped into something that was innately part of us because mm-hmm. it was so broad. I mean, we went to all the museums. Stacy is an archaeologist. She started out at the 
Museum of Natural History working there. Oh. And then she jumped the fence and actually started to work on the other side of the fence when she went to Sotheby's. But Stacy right. in, in Long Island, Wendy, if you remember, she used to go to the old haunted house. Remember the old haunted house? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dig, she'd dig yeah. around there and find old, old newspapers. And, you know, she was always scavenging. And even as a little, yeah. little girl, and she didn't know at that time that she was going to end up as a archaeologist. But she had the exposure to the Museum of Natural History. So, you know, it plugged in. I had the exposure to MoMA. And then there was Sotheby's that MoMA used to take us to, to all of the auctions. We were so fortunate to have a mother who had such a cultural kind of yearning. And right. the fact that she enjoyed our company. She took us everywhere yeah. she went. Yeah. Very sophisticated and I'd say almost a rarefied background. But, you know, I grew up with three sisters. So I have to ask. Were you guys competitive? Did you ever fight? I mean, was there ever a sense of, I'm into fashion, you can't be into fashion, I'm into home, you can't be into home? No. We have never, ever, ever, which is really weird, and people just are sort of stymied by it, but we have never been competitive in that way. The only time we, we had a bit of a moment was over a guy. <laughs> and um, <laughs> we, God help the sister really, who comes between me and my mister, right? Uh-huh. That was the only time in our lives where we actually didn't talk to each other because we went down on this vacation together when we were like 16, 17 alone to St. Martin. So we both fell in love with the same sailor. And, you know, Tawny being the rebel that she is, she stayed. She didn't go back to art school. I came home alone and my her parents <laughs> went, well, where's your sister? And I went, well, that's a long story. So, I mean, that is literally the only moment that we had, and guess who won? My sister won. So, well, it, I mean, it, wasn't, it wasn't a matter of winning or losing. It was just a matter of circumstance. Right. Well, yeah. 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 Right. right. Exactly. And I'm imagining that he had a little something to say in, about the matter, but Wendy, you've more <laughs> than made up for it, you know? So, I wouldn't worry about that. Although, it's interesting she remembers it, isn't it, Tani? Yes, of <laughs> course. <laughs> Michael, you don't forget those moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't forget that. So how did you, like, Tani, I know you worked as a model for a while, but you both ended up in For a nanosecond. Let's just go back. I worked as a model for a nanosecond. Okay, I was not a good model. I was not a good model. I was a terrible model. Um, But I did have the opportunity to work with the greatest photographers. I was photographed by uh, Richard Avedon and by Irving Penn and by... That's pretty good company. You know, it was very good company. So I did have a very important exposure from that side of the camera, which really did feed into the role that I inhabited afterwards as an editor. Right. Well, I'm sure you observed everything because knowing your work and everything, you don't miss a trick. Yeah. And so I, I think I have a certain empathy for the the subjects on the other side of the camera, having been there myself. Right, right. And I think that makes a difference. Right. And Wendy, I would think that would apply to you because I know one reason I admire designers so much is that I've tried, not professionally, but I've tried to do it myself. And so I so admire anybody. You know, I took photography classes in college. That's one mm. reason I learned to love photography. I, I couldn't do it. It's a miracle to me. It's like right. I could no more yeah. write a song than fly to the moon. And even as a designer, I mean, I can outfit a room okay, but I I can't do what designers do. And is that something that you feel is true for oh, you as absolutely. well? Oh, it's absolutely true. I mean, I I marvel at the vision of a designer. I will go into an apartment that looks horrible and I cannot really envision 
that magical thing that they can do, their foresight into all of it. I think it's, it's, it's a beautiful and very creative profession. And I always say to people, if you can give yourself the gift of working with a designer, give yourself that gift. Because, you know, they're pros. And if you've got the right one, really, it can enhance and, and make your life so much better. I totally agree. And one of the things that I love about what you do at New York Magazine, as I mentioned, was the range of interiors that, that you cover and, and celebrate, you know, that you, you don't right. impose your taste on anyone. You appreciate the world that's out there. Now, was that something that was clear to you from the beginning? Because I know like at House and Garden from having worked there myself mm. various times, and you did it twice under two different editors, has it ever been, not a conflict, but shall we say, an issue for you to sort of take something that, you know, that you love and then the editor-in-chief doesn't go for it? Has that been an issue for you over the years? I think less so at New York Magazine now. You have, sort of seems like you have free reign. But how did you adjust to that? Well, I think, yes, there's always a moment of that. I think if, you, if you're working for your editor-in-chief and the editor-in-chief has a very clear vision of who their reader is. But I will say that when I joined House and Garden the first time coming from fashion, I kind of was lucky in that I didn't know what I was doing. So I thought, well, I should do what I know, which is ask fashion designers if I can come and visit them and do stories on their places. And I started with Jeffrey Bean and... Then it went on from there. And that was sort of before fashion had become such a big issue within interior design Mm -hmm. and, you know, covering fashion designers at home. But I think that what's always interested me is telling a story. So the work at New York Magazine is really storytelling about stories of the city and how people face the challenges and the and the wonderful inspiration of living in the city. That's where it started. And again, Adam Moss, was just so encouraging and so inspirational as an editor-in-chief and a boss because he encouraged and was interested in that storytelling. And the more original and kind of strange, he was really interested. And so it encouraged me to really seek out what I loved even more, you know, and it's basically storytelling. Right. I want to add something to this, Wen, because you really, when you just mentioned that you started from fashion and then you started to go into fashion designers houses that was the kind of natural progression there you not only did that but you were the one i really do think that we can credit you with with the fact that you always brought the person who lived in that place into the picture totally I mean, true there's so there's so many interior um stories where you just see these remarkable rooms and gardens and everything, but you have never, ever not included the spirit that actually makes that photograph what it is. And that's the person that lives in it. And I think that we can credit you with that. I don't think we really saw it that much before you introduced Mm -hmm. it. I really mean that. I totally agree with you, Tani. And I agree, Adam Moss is a great visionary editor, but somebody can give you free reign, but if you don't take those reins and run with it, that's, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what you did. Wendy, I think. But he also, when she was already already doing that. So when right. Adam got Wendy, he right. knew what he was right. getting. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But Tani, you've worked with some visionary editors as well. I mean, and yeah. what's interesting to me is, you know, when you were working at Calvin Klein, to me, you sort of embodied, and even in your personal style, this sort of 
I don't know, want to say spare, minimal, relaxed American ease. To me, you're like the best of American style. And that's what's with Calvin Klein at the time. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's Calvin yeah. Klein was sort of also an inspiration at home because I remember when he did his loft in the 70s, Joe Dursa worked with Joe Durso and those other designers. I mean, we all wanted to get moving van quilts because of Calvin Klein yeah. and Joe Durso. Right. You know, and that kind of, um, and I did get one finally. Um, that kind of moment in ease. And yet, as you've progressed in your career, you have dealt with all kinds of designers, all kinds of models. How, how do you approach that? Well, you always keep it with you. Do you know what I mean? I can usually look at a Vogue shoot, and before I read the credits, I say, oh, that's a Tawny shoot. Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, people have said that to me before, and I actually don't really understand it. I think that there is a part of me that, as an editor, I have subconsciously relied on all of the experiences that I've had in my life and that they somehow echo into the, the photographs. They, they are referenced, even if it's not very obvious, it's there. I think that, you know, just part of my DNA is I'm very practical. And I think that that's one of the, the reasons why my persona is pared down and, you know, no nonsense, because there are a lot of things you have to deal with in life that are not, you know, the fashion story that you're working on. And I've had quite a few of those, and they they show up with a kind of a practical eye. I think that when I went to Calvin, it was like, you know, I went home. All of a sudden, I was with a person who I appreciated his taste completely, and it was so easy to be part of his, you know, part vision is sort of a stupid word, but but part of his essence of what he represented. I mean, it was a perfect, perfect fit for me. And what was interesting after that was that going from Calvin Klein to Harper's Bazaar with Liz Tilbaris, where Wendy was also there as, you know, Wendy was the first person that that Liz wanted to hire as the style director of all of us. She was the first. But when I got to Harper's Bazaar, it was interesting because I no longer had the parameters of Calvin Klein to work with. I had anything I wanted to do. Right. So when I was there, all of the things that happened in my life became reflected in the photographs. So when I had my children, all of a sudden there were kids in the right. pictures. And the I way remember you, that era very well. You know, the way you mm-hmm. have a screaming child and you're trying to cook. And, you know, all of those moments showed up in, in the photographs. You know, my love of the desert showed up with Amber and Peter Lindbergh. And, you know, the fact that my when my son was born, the angel, Amber, the angel landing at top Rockefeller Center was Cole, my, my angel. And so it was a wonderful opportunity to have this huge expansion of being able to include in a photograph something that was very, very personal to me. Right. And one of the things that's always impressed me about your work is, we, I mean, we've joked about this, that American practicality again, that you bring an elegance to what's practical. And one of the factors that fashion editor has, any magazine has to do is, we've talked about this, photographing the must because I worked briefly at Harper's Bazaar as well. And the must, at first I thought, oh, those must be the most important pieces of the season. You must have them. But it's actually, as we know, (laughs) the opposite of that in a way. It's like the pieces that the advertisers make and that you must show because you have to give the advertisers credit so they'll keep advertising so that Vogue and Harper's Bazaar would have a 600-page September issue. And, you know, some of those pieces, as you well know, I don't have to explain to you, are not the most avant-garde, not the most beautiful pieces, and yet you always made that work. But that was the fun of it, you see, because I think that when you, you can certainly appreciate, you know, the John Galeanos that come down the runway 
you know, there is so much thought and premeditation that goes into the the turnout of that look. You really don't want to just kind of fool around with it. I mean, you don't it's have to muck perfect. it up. You don't want to muck it up. But when you have a piece that you need to show, which is, you know, a very classic jacket or a trench coat, you know, whatever it is, a trench coat, then you can really let your imagination go wild. You know, that trench coat can go over anything. It can go over nothing. It can go over, you know, you really can have fun with it. So I I have never been opposed to being given the, you know, quote unquote musts. I've always enjoyed it. And so, and the photographers do too. I mean, the days that we used to have fun on the set I mean, we still have fun on the set. Well, actually, we have no fun on the set right now because there's yes, well, no set. Yes, well, we'll get into that. In but, a, you know. <laughs> but, um, but we really, you know, Stephen Mizell was probably my favorite photographer to work with in the early 2000s because we really built the pictures together. You know, it would, the outfit or, you know, outfit is a horrible word, but the look would develop on the set with all of the team contributing to it. And that was the fun of the whole thing. It wasn't, you just plopped it on the model. She stood there and you took a picture. It wasn't, it wasn't that at all. Right. And, and one of the things that I find interesting about that era was in a way, as you were saying, it was almost like there were narratives. You did stories. Mm -hmm. It's like, Wendy, you were saying that you want to tell the story of the person and their, the way they live. But now more recently with the rise of Instagram, et cetera, it seems there's much more attention to an individual photograph. I mean, that's the way Instagram that's right. works. And do you think that's a so loss? Well, I think that storytelling is is always the most fascinating thing for people. I mean, people, you know, love to, to see stories, hear stories. And I think that, again, technology and circumstance is, is shifting the you know, giving us new opportunities, how to do that. And you're so right. Instagram is this moment in time captured. And then, but now with this new, you know, the way new media is shifting with the podcasts and with the storytelling on Instagram and IGTV. Right, IGTV, right. And, you know, things like Quibi, where you only have a 10 minute, like a tiny little short movie or short this. People's attention spans are getting very used to that. And also the idea of using pickup, like, you know, on the cut, there are these wonderful stories that are being kind of put together by editors by looking at different Instagram accounts and then picking this, that, and the other thing. So as we can't go out and do shoots right now and we can't produce them, how do we call wonderful material and we present it? So yes, um, storytelling is taking on a whole new dimension with with what's going on now. So you feel, Antani, do you agree that people still want stories, but they just take them in in different ways? I, I do. I, you know, I, I feel that you know creativity and exposure and storytelling is is even more important now. I, th- I really do think that it's going to be the the motor that gets us going again is creativity because. What else are you going to rely on to to move forward? I mean, we're going to be in a very interesting position because I think that fantasy is going to have a place and I think that practicality is going to have a place and reality is going to have a place and we're going to have to really um, weave them together to make a kind of new world. I think that's really what we're we're up against now. And that brings to mind something else that we that I wanted to talk to you about, which is the celebrity culture. Because another specialty that, Tani, that you developed is working with well-known celebrities, whether they're 
movie actresses or politicians or Michelle Obama or whatever. And Tani, as you know, I don't know if it affects you directly, but certainly I know, even at the shelter magazines, there's a stress on getting celebrity homes. You know, this Drake's home is on the cover of AD this month, um, that kind of thing. So how did you adapt to that? And what do you think is going to happen with it? Well, it, I'm just going to back up a little bit. When mm-hmm. I left working with Mrs. Reeland at the Metropolitan Museum, I went freelance and I, well, no, first, first I went to the New York Times. I worked for the New York Times magazine section with Carrie Donovan. And then from there, I went freelance and I started to work actually for Life magazine. And one of the shoots that I did was with Madonna. So I think Madonna was actually one of the first celebrities that I worked with. And of course, she was the greatest one to work with at the time. She was on the rise. And I was, uh, you know, I had a very modest apartment on the Upper West Side. Bruce Weber took the photographs. He came over. I had a rack of clothes. She came over by herself, probably walked down Central Park West. She came in. She went into my bedroom. She took off all of her clothes. And she sat on the edge of the bed. And she waited for me to bring close to her to try on. And that 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 was the fitting. So it was right. a very different kind of moment. Right. It was wonderful. But it no was publicist, in- no nothing. No. Nothing. Yeah. It was yeah, just it was us. And era. I think that that degree of intimacy that I had right from the start was kind of a way for me to proceed with celebrities thereafter. And when I came to Vogue, I didn't know that I was going to be doing all the celebrity covers. The first right. year that I was there, there was one celebrity and it wasn't even an actor. It was an athlete. It was Marion Jones. The second year, I think there was one model or two models on the covers and the rest was all celebrities. And it was because all of a sudden the adjacent audience was grabbed, right? The the newsstand was very, very active then. People bought magazines from the newsstand. And there'd be hundreds on display. And there'd be hundreds on display. So if you could capture somebody's audience by an actor wearing clothes, like for instance, when um, Natalie Portman was in Star Wars, all of a sudden you had the fashion audience that was going to pick up that magazine, but you also had the audience that loved movies and loved Star Wars. And so you got this huge adjacent audience all of a sudden that was purchasing the magazine. Mm -hmm. And that was really what kept, that's that's what sold it, you know, thereafter. You know, right. you had to have a celebrity. And I, you know, I've almost done 200 covers for Vogue magazine, and that's only Vogue. So there right. was also Harper's Bazaar. And, you know, really, probably, you know, at least 95% of that has been celebrities. Hi, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. I hope you're loving the Cherish podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I'm the co founder and president of Cherish. I wanted to take a quick second to tell you about a not-to-miss event happening on Cherish Thursday, June 11th. As the weather warms up and stay-at-home spring turns into stay-close-to-home summer, outdoor living spaces have never been more important. This June 11th, Cherish will be hosting our first summer outdoor sale, where design lovers can virtually see and shop everything that's new in outdoor design from the best leading outdoor brands and our top vintage dealers. Look for outdoor furniture, lighting, rugs, decor, umbrellas, and more from top brands and leading manufacturers like Oomph, Century Furniture, Lane Venture, and Casa Cosima. Hope to see you on June 11th. And now back to the show. Do you think that's going to change now in in light of the crisis? And 
when I was worked at Vogue a long time ago, I thought, oh, well, this celebrity culture, what do I know? I said, this celebrity culture is going to peak and then we'll go down a little bit. Well, clearly I was wrong. <laughs> and it became even way more influential, which is, you know, I'm not working at a magazine anymore, probably. But it does seem to me that, that things have changed in terms of the way people are regarding celebrities as a part of, as I a result so. of the crisis. I think so. And I think that celebrities are regarding themselves differently. I think that celebrities now are realizing that the world and the way we are living is very, very politically driven. I don't, I don't really know what the right word is, but I mm-hmm. think that if you're a celebrity that doesn't have, have a point of view that is relating to what people are really going through now, that you're just fluff. Nobody want nobody wants to pay attention. I I mean, this is my personal view. So I think that the celebrities that have a voice and have um, you know, a political voice for whatever they believe in are the ones that are going to be listened to that will now, resonate. And, and that right. people are going to be interested in. I think right. that they're not going to be interested in somebody who doesn't have something to say. Right. Right. And well, when- it's also interesting, but the way that we're seeing celebrities now in their homes and in their sweatpants and in their, I mean, I'm sure it's calculated to a big degree, but and in their this whole sort of, yeah, and in their masks sort of paring down and, you know, more down to earth, let's say. More intimate. Uh, the whole, more intimate. And I think the, the irony and the sort of amazing thing about this moment is that here we are all disconnected. But, and yet connected in a very intimate way, sort of in each other's faces, literally on our screens, doing these Zoom calls and doing live chats and doing all of this. You, you see people in ways you've never seen them before. Right. And you visit with people that you would not have visited with before. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a fascinating sort of juxtaposition. Well, it's a virtual thing. reality that has come true. Yeah. yeah. Really but I think, happen. Wendy, you in a way started that or were onto it early, shall we say. Uh, you know, this idea of really getting into someone's home and looking at it as not a style statement. You know, I, yeah. I representing this look or whatever. Yeah. You're like Karl Lagerfeld yeah. when he had his, uh, you know, Memphis apartment. It wasn't like this isn't exactly a, a whole style thing. It was like, this is really the way I live. And I think you were really yeah. early on to that, which is, I think, why you've adapted so well to the cut and, and Instagram and all of that, because you're sort of looking into people's lives and telling the story, as you said, it really resonates still. But I wanted to ask you about the connection with fashion, because I know it, we remember, Wendy, that you know fashion designers were going to take over the home, and that we know so many right. you know, started, I think, right. in the 70s with Saint Laurent. I remember his yeah. sheets. Everybody wanted to have Saint Laurent sheets when I was young. And, you know, Diane von Furstenberg, a lot of people have tried to create a, a connection. Calvin Klein had the home collection right. for a long time. Right. Very successful one for a long time. Ralph Lauren still does. Of How course. do you see that connection continuing? Because fashion now is a little bit challenged, as, it, as is everything. But fashion has been going through a rough couple of years even before Corona. So how do you see that continuing? I think that's a really good question. And I'm just thinking as you were saying those names of Christian Lacroix. Remember Lacroix? I there was do. this moment when House and Garden when we did his apartment in Paris. It was like, whoa. And I think now that's kind of dissolved in the in the Ethernet. I mean, I think that there's so much creativity you see on Instagram and all these I mean, I don't think fashion designers have that kind of sway and pull anymore in the home area because there is so much generated now online and so much generated on Instagram and people are so creative, so kind of 
innovative that I can't really think of a fashion designer today who has influenced interiors the way that they used to. I mean, Ralph Lauren is in a league of his own, of course, and so is Calvin, and so was LaCroix back in that day. But I really cannot think of anybody who has done a line and go, oh, yeah, that translates perfectly. But I I think it's a shifting landscape as far as that goes. Do you, mm-hmm. Don't you? I do, but I, I wonder who is the influencers going to be? I mean, besides the Instagram influencers themselves, those young, yeah. young people, but generally young, who came out and made a big impact with Instagram and now are paid by brands or design houses, yeah. fashion houses or whatever. Yeah. But that seems to be waning. So where do you think the next, I don't know why it's waning, maybe it just became ubiquitous, but, and, and God knows fashion and home evolve, but right. where, what do you think the next impact is going to come from? It's a really good question. It's, I just don't know, because I think that we're in the middle of this volcanic kind of eruption right now where mm-hmm. so much that we knew as far as what we counted on and what we looked to as, you know, that's a great whatever is kind of not there anymore. So something new is bubbling up and something new is kind of on the horizon for us. And it seems to be really literally inside our phones. You know, we look at Instagram and we look at all these different sites. So I think the birth of this new kind of aesthetic and I I think it's so diverse now. There are so many voices out there. And I think that's the challenge too, is which one is going to emerge because there's so too much information as always because of the internet. I mean, how do you edit it? How do you decide what has value and what will have lasting value? Well, lasting is the word. I was about to interject that, you know, longevity is part of this equation too. I mean, we're so used to the the instantaneousness or whatever the mm. proper word is of what's going on now, Wendy, that I think that it's just, it's not only what bubbles to the surface and what erupts, but what has any kind of longevity. Because as you said before, the attention span yeah. now has changed. Yeah. It's just completely changed. Right. So what, you know, what is lasting and meaningful and gets into you and stays and then develops, I think that's going to be the very interesting discovery what what i don't know what that's going to be i mean you know yeah. they do they do say <laughs> that love conquers all and i do feel that love is i know how corny it sounds but i think it is just the only thing that is all encompassing and keeps one going right but do you see tani any i mean god knows it seems to be harder than ever for young designers to make an impact to become seen and known do you see anyone on the horizon that you think is going to have the impact that, say, Calvin did at the time or or even Galliano mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Marc Jacobs? Well, once again, I think that, you know, because of the exposure that everybody has from with Instagram and the, the variety that they see of the way people put themselves together, that I'm not so sure. I think a much a, an eclectic point of view in fashion is really going to be the one that stays put. Right. And I think that... Uh, you know, personally, you know, I'm now the sustainability editor at Vogue, and I am very, very hopeful that the sustainable movement will really gain traction now. I mean, obviously, it's the only place we can go as a, as an industry. The fashion industry has got, you know, is culpable in many, many, many ways, and we all know it. And I think that it's an opportunity now where, you know, there already are pioneers out there. Stella McCartney has is a great example. Right. We could follow a lot of her practices and and make some serious headway. So, 
you know, I think the young designers that are necessarily now they're using they're 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 repurposing fabrics because they don't have the money or the resources to develop fabrics the way they used to be developed. So in a way, that's a very, very positive term for young designers, I think. Right. And sustainability, wouldn't you agree, Wendy, is starting to bubble up in the design industry, which is... if anything, we're probably just as bad as the fashion industry and when you oh, in yeah. terms of construction and the way things are done. But I Absolutely. it seems like there's a growing awareness of it and a need, but I don't know how that's gonna gonna resolve itself. Do you have any ideas, Wendy? I well I think that sustainability is an issue that is a really slippery slope because a lot of the quote sustainable things have just as much toxic Right. You know, whatever, as other things. Well, and it's a it's, term it's, that can be applied to anything, like organic. What yeah. does it mean, you know? but well, Exactly. And, you know, 3D printing, that sounds so great, and it's great. Whoa. But it, that's a lot of plastic in the atmosphere right. and a lot of all that stuff. So I think, again, the focus has to be in these days looking at we've got so much technology and so much talent in the in the design industry. Can we not do better affordable housing? Can we not do better emergency shelters, you know, putting up kit houses and things that are just fantastic. You know, they're good looking, they're easy to maintain. And, um, you know, all of the efforts now, I think, have to go into this more, you know, altruistic and really helpful arena. And that includes sustainability, but it's also like focus, you know, instead of these luxury high-rise buildings that are now all vacant and a place like Hudson Yards, I mean, what's going to happen to these spaces? So I know Neiman Marcus is on is declared yeah. bankruptcy, and that's the anchor tenant there. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, again, I, I could get into a whole thing about Hudson Yards and and how wrong that felt. But I think to really examine, you know, what we've done and how we can be better from what we the mistakes we've made. I mean, I, I hope. What worries me is that sustainability is in fashion, shall we say? And as we know, mm-hmm. fashions change. You know, I yes. remember after nine yes. eleven, Greg and Carter declared irony was dead. You know, that lasted about six yes. months, if that. Right, um, <laughs> right. So right. we'll see. But I do think, and this is one something I want to ask both of you about. I do think that, you know, I, this is my party line. I've been saying this since the crisis really got started. I think that this time is going to point out to people how important their homes are the way they function, their shelter. So I think in a way, the home industry is going to come out of this pretty well, but I'm not sure about fashion. So I'd love to hear what you think, Tani. Well, I think that um, you have a point, I have to say. I think that, you know, just the the mechanics, the, the business mechanics for fashion right now are so incredibly threatened because the, um, the, the supply chain, I mean, it's such an evolved right. it's a global. Uh, and complicated and global. I, I just, you know, I'm very, very concerned for all of it. And I think that, you know, Anna is a huge champion. She has started, um, you know, the Common Thread, which mm-hmm. is to support young designers. And, you know, I think that the, the leaders within the fashion community are really going to have to step up and show what they're worth. And I think that, you know, the big wigs need to, um, you know, it really comes down to being very, very political, all of this. You know, things have got to change. I mean, in our country, we're really in trouble because politically we're kind of screwed right this moment, you know. And 
And I think that, gosh, Michael, I, I just, you know, it's, it's, it's a sobering, sobering question. Yeah. And I just, you know, I just don't know. I think that yeah. we have to, we have to be as positive as we possibly right. can. Right. Well, I, I do think that any society that doesn't encourage and support creativity is a society that's much poorer than it should be and is, is on its way down and out. Yeah. Um, and yep. I'm, I am inspired by young people that there is so much creativity there. It's certainly harder for them, but I think they're going to find a way through. What do you think, Wendy? What have you been seeing? Well, you're, you're, you're a young hipster. You're out there with the young <laughs> yeah. folk. What do you see? Um, well, I think it, it's harder and it's easier at the same time because this sort of the democracy. Uh, remember, in our careers, you had to, you, there was a sort of, not ladder climbing, but there was a process, let's yes. say. You interned and you assisted and you did this and then you did that. Now it's like, zoom, you're right at the top because right. you showed a great this and that on Instagram. Or you, I mean, the whole process. So in a way, a kid getting out of school can like, you know, make $5 trillion because they did something in their garage or they did, right. you, can you shoot, know. You can shoot a whole movie on your iPhone, yeah, you know. That's right. You can shoot a movie. You can start a podcast. You can right. do a line of clothing. You right. can, and then you, right. you can advertise it. There's no middleman. You're not paying an agent. You know, all of this stuff that was part of the process is gone. So right. without the all those middlemen, gone. the hierarchy's gone. There's this democracy of here I am. Take right. me as I am, and and here's what I can do, and so that's really exciting and really great. But it also can just produce so much stuff that's not. Yeah, not that's good. what I was gonna. That's what I want to ask you about because, like, with everybody making all this stuff, yeah. how do you find the good stuff? And is there still a role for what we do, which is sort of be editors, and which I means think, to I say this is. is better than that. I think there is because it isn't as, as we look, as I scout and as I look at projects, it's not just about, oh, this is really original. This is a twist on whatever. This is, this is great to look at. It's about what is the intention and the authenticity and what is the actual, is it well done? Is there discipline? Is there real know-how? Or is it just a bunch of stuff slapped together where somebody dragged in some pieces of furniture? It looks like a showroom. Mm -hmm. I mean, who lives here? What yeah, do they we've care seen those about? Places. Yeah. Right. So I think that there, there is, um, there are, if you're going to have media and if you're going to tell people, invest in looking at X, Y, and Z, because we're the editors and we're presenting it to you. We still have a responsibility to say, we vetted it and this is why we think it's worth your time. This is why we want to present this to you because it's, it's a value. You know, you, you can like it or not like it. It's your opinion, but this is why we think this is something worth your time. And do people still come to you wanting to be in New York Magazine? Is it still? Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, and Tony, I is the same true for you and Fogue? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think absolutely. there's still, the sad thing is the media landscape has changed. You know, like we talked yeah. about the days of newsstands where you could go to any corner and have your choice of any magazines. Now you practically, if you don't subscribe, you have to go to the airport almost to find magazines. There's a few <laughs> stores, but very true. few and even supermarkets. So there's, it's not as ubiquitous. And I think maybe the audience is a little more specialized and rarefied than it used to be for style and design and fashion magazines. But I think that's a very passionate audience. And yeah. they still look to the editors. 
But, you know, yes. it's also a business that was based on advertising. Oh, yeah. How, was that, how do you see that shaking out? It's very frightening because, I mean, we do not know the fallout yet of, yeah. of the collapse of the economy. And it's, it's in free fall as we're speaking. I mean, yeah. we don't know the outcome. And we don't know what's going to, you know, survive and what isn't. And it's a very frightening time as far as, you know, the economy and just what can survive and what, where will those dollars go, those precious advertising dollars? How will they allot them? Will it just be online? Will it be, you know, it's a very frightening and very fragile time for media and advertising for sure. Mm-hmm. 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 And, and how, how do you think, Tani? I mean, well, I, you know, I can do nothing but agree because, yeah. I, you know, there's a dynamic going on now, which is a seesaw. Nobody knows, you know, the fulcrum hasn't been found yet, you know, the, the stabilizing force and the, you know, so I, I just don't know. I really don't know. I think, yeah. I think we're all asking that same question right now. Right. And I think that we are all, God knows, say victims of the larger world and what happens and we can only respond to that. But at the same time, we can motivate ourselves and do things on our own. So I want to ask you both, like, what are you excited about that you're working on now? What's coming up? Just even in the next month or two. I mean, I know it's hard. You can't really shoot, go out. But what have you been thinking about and looking at reading, finding? Well, we are starting to shoot. And so that whole, oh, that whole discovery process of how literally the steps that we take to do it, to technically do a shoot... Is a, is a discovery process right now, which of course I find fascinating because you know anything that that is systematic that you have to apply yourself to, I, I personally find very very interesting, and to combine that and hold hands with the creative process, it's a challenge for sure. But we, we're start we're going to in June we're going to start to shoot again, and it, you, you know there's a whole fascination of how do you get the clothes, how do you you know what's available, how do we you know can you can you put clothes on a model at this point? How do you right. sanitize them? How do you, there's a big, big, big question going on, which I think is quite fascinating. And I think that we have to credit ourselves with being inventive and, and we'll figure it out. You know, right. we're going to figure this one out and see, and see if it's worth it in the end. Does anybody, you mm-hmm. know, that ultimate imagery, what kind of resonance is it going to have? I hope a lot because I right. hope that we're the, the ones behind it will, will make it have a lot of resonance and significance and, you know, a application, but it's a challenge for all of us. I mean, I, I am looking forward to getting back to work. I really, really am. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Wendy, what about you? I know you said you working with the cut, you could look on Instagram and you find things. Well, I, I'm excited about exploring the challenges as we went through this morning of working within this new medium. I mean, the live design, I invite uh, designers uh, to do a live chat with me on design hunting. We're just stepping up that program so that we can do house tours with them from their iPhones, walking us through this and that. And I think that, you know, I'm excited about getting right in, you know, interior lives, the videos that we did, which are sort of on hold at the moment, but really developing a way of telling stories again with videos and with this whole online opportunity uh, the design hunting Instagram takeovers and live chats are very fun and something that I love doing. And so the immediacy of what we have going on now is very exciting. That's why I wanted to be on, on the podcast with you because A, talking to you is always the best. And, and it's embracing what is happening now. 
And I, I never thought really I'd be hosting important. a podcast. I can tell you that, you know. So and it's you're... fantastic. I mean, I think, again, you need to be part of your time. And I think there are always these very exciting things happening. And you're embracing it. And right. um, it's fantastic. It's fun. And it's, it's a challenge. That's great. I mean, communication is everything. It's always been everything. And, right. you know, the fact that we can do this together is is important and it's a, it's a, it's rather a miracle. I mean, yeah. what you have yeah. in your phone is a miracle. Yeah. Yes, it and, is. A miracle. And the fact that we have this is a miracle because we can't. You know, I'm sure at the time they thought the invention of the car was a miracle, which it was, or the plane. But this is kind of, and boy, do we need it now more than ever. So we should be very, very yeah. grateful that we can do this. That yeah. we have Zoom. Yeah. That we have podcasts. That we have all yeah. of this stuff. That we can talk to each other. I mean, I miss being able to give you guys a hug or whatever, but at least I can see you, talk to you, and that is a huge right. thing. And yeah, um, huge. And I think as long as as the creative community talks to each other, as you were saying, Connie, and appreciates each other and supports each other, we'll muddle through somehow. And as you said, Wendy, it's the only time we have. This is mm-hmm. our yeah. time. Yeah, that's so right. So we have that's to make right. the most of it. So, exactly. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And and the fun factor, Michael. You, you always, you know, the fun factor has got to be in, woven in there too, totally. because that word, you know, is kind of like falling off, and we need to keep it in the foreground. Fun. I totally agree with you, Tani. Fun, charm, yes. You mm-hmm. know, humor. These are the yes. things that keep us absolutely grounded and human. And I think they're so important. And it's always totally fun to talk to both of you. And you. And you, Michael. Really appreciate your time today. It's been a pleasure. It's been really lovely. It's been such a pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Thanks for listening to the Cherish Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or even better, go to the iTunes store and post a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes please email us at podcast at Cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and edited by Max Solomon of Hanger Studios in New York. Until next time.